This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story Revisited, where we bring you some of our favourite episodes of the year for your listening pleasure. One of the defining questions of the year is who should pay for the damage that climate change inflicts? Last month, a really significant deal was struck at COP27. A number of developed countries, including Australia, agreed to set up a fund that pays for the loss and damage the climate crisis is causing to the most vulnerable communities, like the low-lying nations of the Pacific. What do you do when parts of your country become uninhabitable because of the impacts of climate change? Earlier this year, Guardian Australia's Pacific editor, Kate Lyons, went to one of these countries, Fiji, where sea levels are rising, first poisoning the land and then swallowing villages whole. And Kate found that Fiji is really struggling to find the funds to relocate some of these at-risk villages. But they've got a plan. Can you read me the sign? Number one to relocation, sponsored by fee, Fijian government, and consultation with the number one to village trust, a climate uh, change uh, project. A climate change project. Yes. That's an interesting thing to include in there. <laughs> so you were the first to come and... And see. Yes. It's a radical plan to move a country. That's coming up after the break. Kate, you went to Fiji and have been reporting on their plan to relocate dozens of villages in the next decade. How are they doing this? Yeah, what's amazing about Fiji is it's already started. So they have already relocated six villages across the country um, and they have a list, a sort of urgent relocation list of 42 that will require relocation in the next five to ten years, Mm. they think. And, of course, that list is not fixed in stone. That's not the extent of it. The Fiji government estimates six to 800 villages across the country are impacted by climate change. And what they've decided to do in the face of the scale of that is actually incredibly impressive, I think, and is unprecedented around the world. They are the first country or at least the first country to go as far as they have in developing an actual like national action plan for relocation that outline exactly how to move a village. It's so clearly and cleverly and comprehensively thought out um, and the Fiji government has gone further, it's believed, than any government in the world in really thinking through how to do this. Right, it does sound like Fiji is further ahead than Australia with this. I mean, we're currently struggling with how to move some towns on the east coast that are built in floodplains after all the floods there. But this sounds like an enormous undertaking in Fiji. What does this plan look like in action? So a really key thing to say is that relocation is only ever the absolute last resort. You adapt, you adapt, you adapt until there is nowhere left to adapt and then relocation is considered. Mm. The other thing that Fiji government is just adamant about, which is all through the plan, is there must be so much community consultation and there has to be absolute community consent in order to move. And they do that multiple times through the process and they have a very high bar. So it needs to be 90% of the community signs on even to trigger the process of being considered for relocation and not just 90% of the community but 90% of each subgroup, 90% of men, 90% of women, 90% of young people, 90% of elderly people. Wow. 
And these safeguards are really important because when it comes to relocation, the outcomes and the process varies a lot. So um, one of the things I saw on my trip to Fiji, I was able to visit two different villages only a few hours apart where they'd had really different experiences of relocation, really, really different um, relocation outcomes. One where it had gone really well, it was sort of the poster child for village relocation in Fiji, and one village that is still stuck in relocation limbo. Mm, Let's talk about those. Let's start with the village in limbo. What does it look like when moving a town doesn't quite go to plan? Yeah, so this village is called Namavatu. Um, It's quite a large village. It's around 385 people and it's built on a hill overlooking the Draketi River. What a view of that river. It's beautiful. It's on Vanua Levu, which is the second largest island in Fiji. While I was there, I met the assistant village headman, Esaroma Lava. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you. I'm Kate. I'm Esaroma. 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 Such a lovely man. He's 66. He was very generous with his time showing us around and talked to us about what his village had been through over the last two years. And so Namavatu is one of these cases where they, they hadn't, known that relocation was coming. It wasn't something that was inevitable for them um, because they'd seen the sea level rise and the coastal erosion. They're on a hill, they're not in a floodplain, they're not on the coast, they are not, they'd never experienced a cyclone before, that they, they don't didn't have all of those sort of risk factors. Esaroma, tell me, tell me what we're looking at right now. What's this the- is the village stage. Mm-hmm. You number about the village head. And there's a huge crack in the wall. Yes, this was uh, caught by the cyclone Anna. And then in January 2021, cyclone Anna hit. This is the first cyclone I ever met during my life. Right. First one that ever came here. I was really scared the day. And it devastated the village. It, it just absolutely smashed it. That was the day, so the, the cyclone hit and you hit under the house, and then the next day there was the soil? Yes, mm-hmm. the early morning of the next day. Early morning of the next day. Because yeah. the rain keep on, it was keep on yeah. raining from yeah. all over the night until the early morning of the next day. That's so that will cost the, the cracks. Mm-hmm. Anna was followed by just an enormous quantity of rainfall. And the rain basically turned the soil on the hill on which the village is um, built to mud and there was land slippage. And so you could actually see it in the buildings where the land had slipped under the foundations of the buildings and caused them to sort of crack in half. Mm. And after that happened, geotech surveyors from the government came out, they surveyed the land and said, it's just not safe, you have to leave now. Mm. And so they packed up and left. Where do you go when your entire town is destroyed? So Namavatu, they went into temporary accommodation. They are living still in disaster relief tents, um, big sort of refugee tents, basically, on the grounds of a church nearby, a few kilometres away. We've got rows of tents set up. Yeah, we built a tent here. It's all 38, 38 tents. 38 tents? Yes. And so how many families in each tent? Like one family, there's uh, like two or 
A big tent, we have two families. Mm -hmm. A smaller one, one family, one tent. And they then began the process of where do we rebuild our village? You know, this, we can't, this is not a long-term solution to live in these tents. Um, and something that factored into this is that in Fiji there's quite a lot of Indigenous-owned land and a big difficulty Namavatu faced is that within their own Indigenous clan boundaries, they didn't have land that was suitable to rebuild on. And so they've been stuck in limbo trying to negotiate with the government a lease of government land nearby where they could rebuild their village. So not having land is a really big factor in whether you're able to relocate well and quickly. You are working together with the government. So they are... But we are, we are really facing that difficulty mm. during this time. Huge difficulty. Very yeah. huge. So when I visited in July, they had been living in these disaster relief tents for 16 months. They're still there. So we're coming on two years now that they have been living at sort of like 10 people to a tent, wow. 13 people to a tent, with a whole lot of issues in that living situation. Tell me about what their life is like living in tents for nearly two years. Yeah, this uh, like uh, we going back like to square one again. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you're, you're sort of you're camping every day of your life, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. I met Esaroma's daughter, uh, Lysana. Okay, this is my daughter. This is your daughter. Yes. Oh, hello. Hi. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you. And too. your granddaughter. Granddad. Yes. She was with her little toddler. It was bath time, and she told me that the challenges are enormous um, to sort of raise a little kid there boiling hot in the tent in the middle of the day, so she spends most of her time outside. So normally I just take her down, relax there under the mango tree. And she said it's just not safe for them to stay in the tents during the day. The kid can't nap in there, can't play in there because mm. it's too hot. So they just spend most of the day outside under a mango tree. Right, we're talking tropical conditions. Yeah, here. really, really warm. There's no electricity connected to the site. They do have small solar batteries that allow them to charge a phone. So the kids, after they finish school, if they want to keep doing their schoolwork into the night, they do that by the torchlight from their phones if they have them. They do have water, but it's patchy. The big problem is the toilets. So how many toilets in the church? Like three for the ladies and three for the men. men. Okay, that's not very much. And what about showers? Yeah, we showers to grade three and three. Mm -hmm. Privacy is an issue, lots of issues that they face, yeah. So when does it look like they will have new homes and a new village to live in? And so this is going to be the land? Yes, it's uh, 12 acres. 12 acres, 12 acres. So when I visited, Esaroma was really hopeful because he and the other village leaders had just reached an agreement with the government to lease this 12-acre plot of land near the current site where they're living in temporary accommodation, and he was really happy about that. And how do you feel looking out at this land? Yeah, we really appreciate this land. Yeah? We like it. That's good. Mm. It's near to the school, near to the shopping mall, near to the dispensary. But here, it's near. Everything is near. Mm -hmm. When I checked in uh, in late October, logging hadn't started for the new homes, so it looks like it'll be a minimum of 18 months before there's anything like a new village and quite possibly a lot longer than that. 
So, Kate, a big topic of conversation at COP27 that's currently underway in Egypt is whether the world's biggest polluters should pay for the damage that countries at the front line of the climate crisis like Fiji are facing. So who is paying for these relocations and how much does it cost? So the amount it costs to relocate a village varies enormously. Um, I asked the climate change minister and he said, look, I just can't give you a number that covers every village given the risks and the size and how far you move them and all of that, but a few million dollars for Mm. each village. So in Namavatu, the funding will be split between the Fiji government and the village itself. So it's a two-thirds split to the government who will do the infrastructure and the electricity and and hardware and stuff like that. And that third is made up of timber that they will supply from their own um, forests. But one of the things that's really clear about this this plan that the Fiji government has put together is that it's sort of articulated the extent of the problem and it's articulated the solution and it's sort of saying to the world, okay, we're taking this leap, you need to step in and leap with us because there is not enough money to do what they hope to do and, yeah, they're they're very much hoping that the international community recognises that as part of climate justice, as part of loss and damage, um, responsibilities, the international community really needs to be contributing. We see this so clearly in a place like Namavatu, which not only do they need money for relocation, they just need money for survival right now. Uh, we have to pay the bills every three months. They're struggling to help pay water bills. Um, and when I was there, Esaroma asked me if I knew of ways that they could reach international donors and they could do fundraising on the internet. And I I mean, it was such a heartbreaking moment, to be honest. I, it was one of those sort of you, you stop being in a journalist mode and sort of just are in a heartbroken human mode. I'm trying to, to ask you that uh, is there any, any need for us to ask to you people say that you can donate us like Mm. In this uh, in this moment, because we are really facing the difficulties about the electricity. Yeah. So you're saying, is there a way that people back yes. in Australia can donate to yes. the village? That's a good question. Do, I, is there? Do you have a, like a GoFundMe? Have you heard of that? Uh, not, I'll no. write it down. Show it to one of the young okay. people. Okay. Are you can ready? You hold down? this for me a second. You write it down, then I'll give it to my brother. You give it to a young person because he is. Is he like this leader of the task force? Yeah. Okay, this is what the website's called. It's incredible to think about that these communities on the front line of, the global front line of climate change, have to fundraise for just basic essentials. Yeah, it really is. It's really heartbreaking. Where are we heading to? So we're heading to Bunindongaloa village. It's uh, the village that was uh, successfully relocated by government about eight, nine years ago. And it was the first or one of the first villages to ever be relocated in Fiji? First, first in Wanalewa as well to be relocated, fully relocated from uh, the old village side and they moved up, up here. Next, the village that led the way. The Full Story Summer Series explores some of the quirks of Australian life. 
Stories that make you laugh. Do you really think that, like, you tell your parents, like, when I grow up, I want to do comedy? No. Think. Jane Austen was basically Pakistani, I determined. And experience. I think I find synthesis endlessly mysterious. Listen to the full story summer series from the 2nd of January. So, Kate, tell me about the other town, the one where the relocation has gone a bit smoother. This is the village of Vunidongaloa. Um, it's on the same island as Namavatu, Vanuolevu, and it was actually the first village in Fiji to ever be relocated, planned relocation, in 2014. And it's a bit like a, a sort of proof of concept or a, like a model village um, for this terrible, terrible concept of relocation because mm. of climate change. It's about 140 people. It was a coastal village. It was a fishing village. And they have been experiencing sea level rise for decades. So when I was there, I was talking with Silosi Ramatu, who was the village headman in 2014 when they relocated. We left our dead parents. We left our parents. We left everything before we moved to a new place. You know, today it's like moving as far as to a foreign land. Mm. So Vunidongaloa's experience is that it's had sea level rise and you can just, you squelch your way through that when you visit the old village site. Yeah? Yeah, fine. Fortunately, that was mud, not cow pad. Silosi was wearing gumboots. We were all in sandals and we were just slipping in the mud on the village green that used to be lovely, lush grass. It used to be where they grew crops. It used to be where they met and drank kava, met and had feasts. And now it's just boggy slush. And Silosi was saying, and the, the water that we're stepping on is salty because it's the sea has, has crept up. Mm. Um, and he took us down to the, um, the sand beach and he actually showed us uh, sticking out of the sand concrete footings, that concrete blocks that were the footings of his family home when he was growing up, which they moved back once and then a second time, even before relocation. You know, they adapt and adapt and adapt until they can adapt no more. And we saw, you know, we saw the remains of multiple seawalls out in the ocean that had tried and failed to keep the sea from battering the shore and eroding the coastline. Mm -hmm. It's like a grim marker of time or of climate change over yeah, time. totally. And just a reminder that, like, adaptation only goes so far. You know, there's a point where you cannot adapt anymore and you just have to move. And Silosi was saying that he grew up hearing discussions about whether relocation would need to happen from his parents and his grandparents. So they felt like they had the blessing of ancestors of previous generations to go, and, th and that's such an obstacle for people. So they decided to relocate in 2014. Tell me about the new village in Vunidongaloa. So the new village um, is about two kilometres inland and up. It's on a beautiful green hillside. The houses themselves are also pale green and they're sort of dotted down it. Beautiful, pastoral, abundant, verdant kind of Fiji scenes. And by and large, people are very, very positive about how the relocation went. The new houses have septic tanks and solar panels and flushing toilets. And each family has its own home. They don't have to share like they did at the old village. So I 
got to see inside one of these houses. A woman named Sarah Nadrua, uh, who's 74, invited us in to come for lunch. Come. Thank you. Sarah doesn't speak much English, and so Eleanor, who's a, a very senior Fijian journalist who was travelling with me and making introductions, translated for me. We sat down on her floor, and she'd laid out a green gingham cloth. What is it? Uh, it's a... Uh, ah, beautiful. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Lovely. Lovely. You begin, you begin. Yeah. Show me. Okay. She served us taro leaf and cassava, which was very, very delicious and generous of her, and talked to us about the move and what it had been like and life in the new village. It was a, it was a relief having to move here into new homes that were that were built for them. It's true that they're coming to a new home, mm -hmm. a newly built home for each one of them, but you know, their memories in the old village that they've had to live behind. There's some disadvantages as well that they haven't loved. It's close to a main road, so they have concerns about safety, which means easier access of alcohol into the village, which has caused some concerns for the village leadership. It's further away from the sea, which means further away from fishing, which is something that is so key to the livelihood and health and nutrition and all of that of the village. Um, so there are some issues, but by and large, people just say, we're safe here and we're just really <laughs> happy to be somewhere where we're safe and we're not living in fear every time it rains. Mm. So this village had more time to think about this relocation. Were there any other factors that meant it was smoother and, and more successful, really? Vunidongaloa had a few things going for it that Namavatu did not. Um, specifically, it had land within its own clan boundaries that it could move to and it had resources. Even though Vunidongaloa had heaps going for it, it was still incredibly hard for the village and incredibly heartbreaking. And one of the things that was really hard was they left behind the bones of their ancestors. They left behind the, the graves. But it was also a sad uh, occasion for them having to leave behind. Uh, for her, her parents are buried in the old village site. And so even though they had the blessing they felt of previous generations who talked about relocation, there was still um, a huge amount of um, soul searching before the move happened. They they actually brought in um, ministers, Methodist ministers, which is the, the denomination of the community, um, to stay with them and talk with them. Sarah told me that the whole village fasted and prayed for a month. So for a month, the village went through a fast and they were praying for the intervention on, about the relocation. Before they eventually decided, yes, they were going to relocate. It was a really profound experience for the whole community. There was a lot of emotions that day you know, because a lot happened there and there's memories there. Sometimes they go back, mm -hmm. they go to the old village just to have a look around mm -hmm. and just to think, just for memory's sake, yeah. So, Kate, Fiji is trying to replicate this successful move in dozens of other communities over the next 10 years. Is this going to work for everyone? Are you able to move a country? Yeah. I, I mean, 
the answer is no. Like you, you can't move everyone who is affected by climate change. I went to lots of villages for this story, some of which are deeply impacted by climate change and have no plans to relocate. They're not even close to being seriously enough um, affected to warrant making the government's list to move. Mm. Um, and yet they're experiencing huge impacts of, of sea level rise, of salt water intrusion, of devastation of crops, of all of that. And then there are some people who really don't want to go. And unless, you know, consent from the community is such an important thing in Fiji and in the Fiji government's policy, that unless it's really, really unsafe, like in Namavatu, where they just cannot stay on that land, they're not going to be forced to go by the government. And so I met one woman, Lavinia Magoon, um, who lives in a settlement close to the capital of Suva, and they lose a metre and a half of land, they estimate, each year to sea level rise. And and she just has no interest in moving. You know, they told me to be located. I said, not at this old age. I'm old to go and start all over again. I think that's uh, heartbreaking. The government's approached her about it and she just says that the community does not want to go. They don't want to relocate. She kind of has loved her life in Tongaroo. Beautiful, so peaceful. And this is what we want in life. Well, I, I live here with my grand grandchildren. My husband passed away in 2013. And uh, I'm OK. I'm happy. Because, what, like I've told you, I've got everything free. If I want to eat fish, I just stand up here, throw my line, catch my fish. In Fiji, we live from day to day, and that's it. That's the main thing. <laughs> live from day to day, you're a happy person. But she also just doesn't see a future for her children and her grandchildren there long term. In 50 years, yeah. what will be the future of Tongaro? Will Tongaro be here? I'll be a dead one. I'll be dead by then. <laughs> Well, that's it. The only thing uh, I'm telling my grandchildren, you children try to be better off than us. School, go to school while you're still at it. School, achieve your goals, work, earn money, and bugger off overseas. As you've mentioned, Fiji is just one place around the globe that's facing these big decisions about what to do with communities that become unlivable. What can the world learn? from Fiji as an example. What Fiji's doing right now is tragically what so many countries will do over the next decade, 50 years, 100 years. And the fact that Fiji is being so sort of clear-eyed and deliberate about how it approaches this problem, I think is a huge lesson to other countries, but I think one of the key lessons is just that the world will look at Fiji and realise this is not future tense. Climate migration is not 100 years down the track. It is right now and it is something that needs such careful, deliberate planning and funding and consultation to get even close to getting right. Um, and that action needs to start now. That was Kate Lyons, Pacific Editor for Guardian Australia. You can read more of Kate's coverage of Fiji's relocation plans and Adam Morton's coverage of COP27 in Egypt at theguardian.com. 
We've linked to Kate's long read on Fiji on the full story page titled How to Move a Country, Fiji's Radical Plan to Escape Rising Sea Levels. I do recommend checking that out. It's got maps and beautiful photos of Fiji and the people that Kate spoke to while she was there as well. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria. Sound design and mixing by Camilla Hannan. The executive producers of Full Story are Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassie, Miles Mattioni, and me, Laura Mofiotes. Okay, catch you next time. Hey, Laura Mofiotes here. If you like keeping up to speed with the day's news, you should subscribe to our free newsletters. They're short and curated, so you don't miss a beat. And there's two of them, Morning Mail and Afternoon Update. Visit our website where you'll be able to subscribe to both newsletters directly from our homepage. Okay, back to the podcast.